the conflict between light and darkness, between good and evil, is perhaps the most pervasive narrative ever. It's a story that every one of us is familiar with. Uh, And we probably can't remember a time when we've not had an awareness of this fight between good and evil. When I was a kid, I used to like watching the A-Team and Knight Rider. I think you got them here in Australia. We've recently introduced our children to them through Google Play, and they love them. And the thing with those shows is there's never any doubt who are the goodies and who are the baddies. Uh, And so many of our books and films adopt this narrative between the fight between good and evil, the Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Harry Potter, the list is endless. And even when the lines are fuzzy, when it's not immediately obvious who are the goodies and who are the baddies, we're so accustomed to this narrative that we sit there trying to work it out. If you've ever watched a film with a child, you will have been asked the question, is she a goodie or is he a baddie? It's like this narrative forms our frame of reference. We understand the world in these terms. And it's natural that we should because it reflects a deeper reality, a reality that is explicitly revealed in Scripture. There is a battle between good and evil, between God and the devil. It's a battle that we can see being fought in the world around us. It's a battle that is raging within each one of us. Now, we know that Jesus has already won the victory, but that's not always immediately apparent when we look at the world around us, even when we look within ourselves. But when Jesus returns, there will be no doubt that Jesus has won the victory. Every knee will bow, and God's kingdom will be fully established forever. So we have good and evil, and good will prevail. This isn't simply how we like to imagine things in books and films and stories. This is the deep reality of our world. And this fight between good and evil is portrayed so vividly in this iconic battle between David and Goliath. But before we get into that, it's helpful to understand one of the main themes of 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel tells some of the most involved, sophisticated, and well-told stories that we'll find anywhere in the Bible. And there's a thread that runs right the way through them. And that is the contrast between pride and humility. Uh, Hannah's song, Hannah is, uh, was uh, Samuel's mother. Hannah's song in chapter 2 makes it clear that God will oppose or bring down the proud, but he will exalt or lift up the humble. God will bring down the proud because it is pride that makes us think we don't need God, that we don't want God, that actually we can do away with God altogether. It is pride that makes a person think those things. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, the vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice The utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So that's a thread to look out for in 1 Samuel, this contrast between pride and humility. And we see it so clearly in this battle between David and Goliath. And like so many of the biblical stories, we're invited to see ourselves 
in the characters. We're invited to reflect and think, well, am I more like Goliath or Saul or David? Who am I in this story? So firstly, we have Goliath, a beer moth of evil. He is pride personified. He's the cause of much fear and anguish, and he defies the armies of Israel. And you can imagine it, can't you? The Israelites on one hill and the armies of the Philistines on the opposite hill. And in the middle, you've got this no man's land, uh, this uh, valley. And each day, Goliath confidently strides forwards and offers his challenge. And actually, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for two armies to put forward a champion who would fight it out on everybody else's behalf. But no one wants to fight Goliath. He's ginormous, and his weapons and his armor are ridiculously heavy. Was Goliath literally three meters tall? I don't know. Uh, Did his armor literally weigh 58 kilograms? I don't know. We don't need to get bogged down with that. The, the point that's being made is that he is extraordinarily large and fierce and intimidating, and he defies the armies of Israel. And when David walks out to meet him, he sneers at David. He said, am I, am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And he cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And you're probably now thinking, well, I'm nothing like Goliath. But what is Goliath relying on? What does he put his trust in? I mean, he invokes his gods uh, when he curses David, but he doesn't seem to be relying on them. He's full of confidence because he's bigger and stronger and more experienced, and he knows that everyone's afraid of him because he's come out 40 days on the trot with this same challenge, and no one has come forward uh, to oppose him. Goliath is confidence is in himself and in his ability to overcome by force. He believes that no one can stand against him, and even though he may not realize it, in his pride, he's defied God's people, and he's sneered at God's anointed. He's effectively given two fingers to God. So we relax now, and we're thinking, well, I am not like Goliath. But what are we like in our places of work when there's conflict or tension or a difference of opinion. How do we respond to that? Are we defiant, immovable, hot-headed? Do we get our own way because our work colleagues are scared of us, scared of upsetting us? Those of us who manage teams, what kind of leader are we? Do we dictate? Do we use force? I don't mean physical force. I mean, are we domineering or overbearing? Do we push people into a corner? Do, do, Do we use bullying tactics? and convince ourselves that we're displaying strong leadership? What are we like in relationships? Do we put our foot down? Do we make sure that we always get our own way? Are we inflexible and uncompromising? Are are our partners walking on eggshells around us? What are we like with our children? When they're playing up, do do we use fear as a means of control? Do we uh, get angrier and shout louder until they capitulate? Of course, all parents sometimes have to raise their voice. I'm not talking about that. I'm I'm talking about an unhealthy desire to intimidate and control by force. These are all symptoms of pride, a Goliath-like attitude that says, I will subdue my opponent by force. You might be thinking, I don't do any of those things. I'm definitely nothing like Goliath. But none of us are immune from pride. 
How often do we go rushing into our day without committing it to the Lord? That's pride. It's like saying, nope, I don't need you today, God. I've got my size and my strength. I've got my uh, weapons and my armor. I've got everything I need right here. I'm off. And it's not until we come unstuck that we think to ask God for help. Excluding God from our lives in any way, shape, or form is pride. Failing to put Jesus at the center of our lives is pride. Uh, Not investing in our spiritual growth is pride. It's like saying, yep, it's good to have uh, Jesus on the sidelines as a a backup, but actually I'm doing pretty well on my own. I I can make do without Jesus. It's pride that says that. So Goliath trusted not in God, but in himself. And he pridefully thought that he would achieve his aims by exerting force and power. This is the way of the world, but it's not God's way. Next, we have Saul, the king of Israel. He knows that something has to be done about this giant of a man, but he doesn't know what to do. If nobody opposes Goliath, it will give the Philistines a huge psychological advantage and Israel will almost certainly be defeated but no one will face him the people are looking at Saul and Saul is desperately looking for someone anyone who will face this giant Saul is desperate and he hears about a young man called David who's saying things like this this is David speaking he says what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. And so in an unprecedented move, Saul sends for this ruddy-faced boy, this nobody, to see if he can offer a glimmer of hope. Saul is supposed to be a great king, and yet he's passive and fearful. He's non-committal. He feels helpless. He, he lacks the personal resources to deal with this problem. He's overwhelmed and he's overawed. And what this amounts to is a lack of faith. All Saul can see is the predicament that he and the nation of Israel are in. And like Goliath, he's relying on his own resources. But unlike Goliath, he sees himself and the nation of Israel as the underdog. And I think all of us can identify with Saul. We all have some sort of Goliath to face in our life. Uh, In fact, over the course of our lives, we'll have to face lots of them. A problem, a concern, a situation that causes us to be fearful, anxious, and unsettled. Could be to do with our health, could be to do with relationships, or family, or problems at work. It could be something in our past that we're struggling to come to terms with. We need healing. It could be something we're grappling with, an addiction, or a character trait that's unhealthy and destructive. If there's one thing that I've learned as a pastor, it's that we are all struggling with something. Don't be fooled when you look at other people's lives and you think, well, they've got it sorted out. No, they haven't. None of us have. None of us have. And very often when we're faced with some seemingly insurmountable problem, we take on a Saul-like demeanor. We look at the problem. We look at who we are. We look at our resources. We look at how we're feeling and we think, I can't do this. I can't do it. All we can see is this thing that's causing us so much stress. We can't see around it. 
We can't see over it. We can't see beyond it. I think we've all felt like that at some point. So we have two extremes. Goliath, who is supremely confident and so proud that not only does he not rely on God, but he goes as far as to mock Israel's God. Goliath thinks that if he exerts enough force and power, he will overcome anything that stands in his way. And then we have Saul, also not trusting God, but overwhelmed by the problem. He feels powerless to affect any sort of positive change. Well, we don't want to be like Goliath, and we don't want to be like Saul. We want to be like David. Uh, David, in a flawed human way, points forwards to Jesus and gives us an example to follow. And it's important that we see the, the parallels between David and Jesus. So last week, we saw that David is God's anointed. He's to be king over Israel. Well, straight away, that makes us think of Jesus, doesn't it? You remember how, uh, you, you know, um, the anointed king of Israel, the king of the Jews. You remember how Jesus stood up in the synagogue saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus is a king in the line of David, a distant relative of David, anointed by God. That's the first thing, the first parallel, and we'll pick up on the others as we go through. So at this point, uh, David is not, is, he's, he's old enough to look after the sheep, but he's not yet old enough to join the army. He's probably about 15 years old. He's the youngest of eight brothers, three of which are at the front with Saul. Verse 15 says, the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. David was from Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Another parallel. And you can imagine David going back and forth. He knows he's supposed to be tending the sheep, and he is doing, but he'd much rather be at the front with his brothers. So David is supposed to be tending sheep. He's a shepherd, just as Jesus is the good shepherd, the ultimate shepherd. So we have this parallel between these two shepherds born in Bethlehem. So eventually David's father, Jesse, sends David to the front line with some provisions and grain, bread, and cheese, and notice that David is sent by his father with physical nourishment for the people. Just as Jesus was sent by his father with spiritual nourishment for us, for his people. So David is on the front line and Goliath comes forward with his daily challenge. And as per usual, the Israelites are terrified. And when David sees and hears this, he's outraged what Spurgeon described as fervent indignation. And he says, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David loves his people and he's appalled that they're cowed by this monster of a man. Uh, How dare he put such fear and dread into God's people? And David recognizes that something needs to be done to remove this disgrace from Israel. Out of love for his people, David resolves to destroy Goliath. Just as Jesus, out of love for his people, resolved to kill the ultimate Goliath, to destroy the ultimate Goliath, which is sin and death. David's brothers see where he's going with all this. And in verse 28, we read that Eliab burned with anger 
at David. Eliab sees David as this young upstart. How dare he come down here and start making out like he's some big warrior. Get back to your sheep, he says, you wicked, conceited little war tourist. Can you think of anyone else who was rejected by their own? In his hometown of Nazareth, uh, Jesus made the people so angry that they attempted to throw him off a cliff. Now, remember that one of the great themes in 1 Samuel is that the proud will be brought low and the humble will be lifted up. And David is humble. He's the youngest of eight brothers. He's not yet old enough to join the army. Uh, He's a shepherd boy. He's at the bottom of the pecking order. His brothers take every opportunity to remind him of this. But Jesus also held a very low station by the world standards, didn't he? But David seems to have a, a different perspective to everyone else. He has total confidence in God because he knows that God is in control. And so when David is brought before Saul, he offers to go and fight Goliath, to which David reply, uh, sorry, Saul replies, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But notice how David remembers how God helped him in the past to defeat the lion and the bear when they attacked the sheep. Now, no doubt Goliath is a a much more formidable opponent, but that's irrelevant to David. Uh, He remembers how God gave him the victory over the lion and the bear, and he fully expects God to do the same thing with Goliath. And so David sets out with his sling and his five smooth stones. In many ways, quite a pathetic figure there with his stick and his sling, especially when compared to Goliath. So David, in the world's eyes, a pathetic figure, goes out against a colossal and clearly defined enemy on behalf of God's people with no thought for his own safety. Does that remind you of anyone? Let me read that again and hold the name of Jesus in your mind as I do. So David, in the world's eyes, a pathetic figure, goes out against a colossal and clearly defined enemy on behalf of all God's people and with no thought for his own safety. And Goliath sneers at David, mocks him, to which David replies, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And as Goliath moved in to attack, David slung a stone, hit him on the forehead. Goliath fell down dead. He may have been dead before he hit the ground, but then we have that rather grisly account of David running over, taking Goliath's sword and decapitating him, cutting his head off with his own sword. Uh, We are left in absolutely no doubt that Goliath is dead. He's finished. So how can we be like David? How can we deal with the Goliath in our life? Well, we started by thinking about this battle between good and evil, uh, this narrative that's so pervasive in our culture and every culture. We see it in the world around us. We see it within ourselves. Jesus has won that battle. Jesus has already won that battle. Just as David defeated Goliath, Jesus has defeated uh, sin and death and every kind of evil. 
David looked back, didn't he? He looked back at the victories God gave him in the past over the lion and the bear. Uh, And whatever we face in life, we need to look back at the victory that Jesus has won for us on the cross. Because that victory means that whatever is troubling us, whether it's sickness or loneliness, temptation, poverty, persecution, whatever it is, if we hold fast to Jesus, it will pass. It will pass. And it will give way to something glorious and lasting and beautiful because evil has been decisively defeated. David's defeat of Goliath casts a faint shadow of that. Jesus' death and resurrection brings this reality into clear focus. We all have stuff that we have to deal with, problems in life that we're facing. But we don't want to meet those in our own strength and with nothing but our own resources. And we certainly don't want to, uh, to assert ourselves in a forceful, aggressive, bullying, prideful way. You know, sometimes I say the best defense is to be on the offensive. And a lot of people adopt that kind of tactic in, in their life. We don't want to do that. That would make us like Goliath. And we'll soon discover that we're not as invincible as we thought. As it says in the book of Proverbs, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. But equally, we don't want to be overwhelmed and subdued and and to feel that we can't do anything to make any kind of positive change. We don't want to roll over and admit defeat. That would make us more like Saul. We want to be like David, who had steadfast trust in the living God. He knew that God was in control, and so he faced Goliath with total confidence. He knew that God would give him the victory. And we're in a better position even than David because we know that Jesus has already won that victory on our behalf. So whatever we're dealing with in life, whatever giants we face, we deal with them in God's strength and not our own. And we face them as those who have already been given the victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that all of us are struggling with something. All of us. And Father, we don't want to try and bluster our way through life using our own resources and our strength to achieve our aims and to deal with our problems. Father, help us to resist that. And we don't want to feel helpless and hopeless and despairing and just not know what to do. That would make us more like Saul. We don't want to be like that. Heavenly Father, whatever's going on in our lives, we pray that you will give us the confidence to, to deal with it, to face it in your strength and not our own, and to recognize that ultimately we have been given the victory. Ultimately, whatever we're dealing with will pass and give way to something glorious and lasting and beautiful. We pray, Father, that we can maintain that hope and that we can keep our eyes fixed on you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.